Good afternoon. Welcome to the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan Kemp. I'm a senior staff worker here with the EU. Really glad you could come and join us today as we continue our look at this book, this amazing book of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Christian Bible. You can see the heading there on the screen in front of you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. It's the cry of an avenger, isn't it? Without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness. It's someone who wants to punish, someone who wants to respond with, with like to like. It's a cry of anger, a cry of determination. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. may cause even more disquiet to you when we realise that actually this is a quotation from the Christian scriptures. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How can the Christian God say such a thing? Isn't the Christian God meant to be a God who's full of love and mercy? What does the Christian God mean when he makes such an unsettling and disturbing pronouncement? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We're going to try to explore this question today. And we're going to start by looking at Exodus chapters 11 to 13. This is part of our on again, off again series this year, looking at this second book of the Christian Bible, the book of Exodus. So as we start today, let me bring you quickly up to date with where we are in this Exodus account, just to refresh your memories. We're in the middle, you may recall, of a showdown. A showdown between Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and the Lord, the God of the Israelites. But as we saw last week, it's not a showdown really just between a king and a god. It's actually a showdown between the Lord, the God of the Israelites, and Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. The deeper question here in the early chapters of Exodus is, who is the real God? Who is the true God in all the earth? And as I mentioned last week, this divine showdown has four phases And we looked at the first two phases of this showdown last week. Phase one was called sizing up your opponent. And that was where the Lord, the God of Israel, made it very clear to Pharaoh who actually was going to be the winner in this showdown. The Lord made it clear to Pharaoh in word but also in deed that in the end Pharaoh was going to lose. He was not going to be the victor this time round. And yet even with that message from the Lord, Pharaoh wasn't dissuaded from taking his uh, rebellious stance against the Lord. So that brought us to phase two last week where Pharaoh went nine rounds with the Lord and we saw the first nine plagues that the Lord brought upon Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. Why did he bring these plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians? To demonstrate to them his reality, his power, that he is the true God in all the earth. And maybe you might remember the ninth plague. Now I know this is going to test your memory any chance that anyone actually remembers the ninth plague? Silence is not it. Darkness, thank you, yes. 
The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. A darkness, we read, that lasted for three days and was so dense and thick that it, it almost could be felt. And people stayed inside because it was just too frightening. That was the ninth plague that we saw last week, the plague of darkness. And you may remember that in the midst of that darkness, Pharaoh tried to negotiate a reduced settlement with Moses because the the command of the Lord had been that his people be let go for a three-day journey into the wilderness. Pharaoh tried to, to negotiate a reduced settlement. He said, well, look, you can all go, but leave your livestock behind. But Moses' response was that the Lord does not negotiate with Pharaoh's no correspondence will be entered into and Pharaoh got pretty upset at that. Do you remember Pharaoh's response? You can, you've got your book of Exodus there. Have a look in chapter 10, verse 28 to 29. Let's remind ourselves where we finished last week. When Moses says, No, there will be no negotiation. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care that you do not see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, Just as you say, I will never see your face again. Well, today we pick up events in the second half of that conversation. That it wasn't the end of that conversation. Pharaoh's basically said, Moses, get out of my face. If I see you again, you're dead. And Moses says, okay. But then Moses has one final word for Pharaoh, a word from the Lord for Pharaoh before he leaves. And that's chapter 11. So let's pick it up there. First of all, in the first couple of verses of chapter 11, First of all, the Lord says something to Moses. He says, Moses, get ready. Here comes the final round. This is it. After this final demonstration of my power, of my might, Pharaoh not not only will let you go, Pharaoh's going to drive you away. He's going to be desperate to get rid of you. And so what you should do then, in verse 2, tell the people, that is the Israelites, that every man is to ask his neighbour... And every woman is to ask her neighbour for objects of silver and gold. What's that about? Why does the Lord give Moses this instruction? Well, if you've got your Bible there, flick back to chapter 3 of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. We're going right back now to the incidents of the non-burning bush. You may remember, Moses, first of all, The Lord revealed himself to Moses at this non-burning bush back in chapter 3. And right back there, right at the beginning, the Lord laid out for Moses everything that was going to happen. And notice what the Lord told Moses in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. The Lord says there, I will bring this people, that is the Israelites, into such favour with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbour and any woman living in the neighbour's house for jewellery of silver and of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. They're not going to leave empty-handed when they leave. So the Lord now is saying to Moses, this is it, this is the final one, so you better get them asking for all that silver and gold and clothing from their neighbours because you're about to get rich and you're about to get set free. And then the Lord has something to tell Pharaoh. Have a look there, back in chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt such as has never been or ever will be again. This is the terrible announcement of the final plague. Death to all the firstborn males. You may remember from some of the earlier rounds that Pharaoh's gone with the Lord how sometimes the Lord introduced a distinction between his people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians to make it extra clear to Pharaoh which God was the real God. You may remember sometimes when there was darkness in the ninth plague, there was actually light wherever the Israelites lived. Well, once again here in this final plague, he draws a distinction. Have a look there in verse 7 of chapter 11. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's the contrast. The Lord is going to go through the land against the Egyptians and strike down all the firstborns, but not even a dog would dare growl at the Israelites. So protected, so favoured are they. And notice also that Pharaoh's officials, it seems like they're almost going to swap allegiance there in verse 8. Moses continues to Pharaoh, Then all these officials of yours, Pharaoh, shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Leave us, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will leave. And in hot anger, Moses left Pharaoh. Well, that's the end of phase two. Nine rounds with the Lord and now a final word from the Lord to Pharaoh about this is it, this is the final one. And it's terrible to behold the death of all the firstborns. So that's the third phase. The third phase, the killer blow. What then happens in this third phase, this decisive phase. First of all, the Lord gives some instructions to his own people to get ready for this killer blow. He gives some instructions to the Israelites and you can see the passages that are relevant there, Exodus chapter 12, 1 to 13, but also verses 21 to 23. Let me summarise what those passages tell us. The Lord says to the Israelites, what you have to do is each household is to get hold of a, a lamb a one-year-old male lamb without any defects. And if a lamb's too much for your household, then, then join with a neighbouring household and come together into the one place and, and have this lamb. You're to keep it for a number of days and then on a particular day, the day that I say, you're to kill the lamb. In particular, without breaking any of its bones. You take the blood from this slain lamb and you get a bunch of hyssop and you dip it in the blood and you, you dab it onto the door frames of your house, onto the sides and onto the top. And you take this lamb and you roast it. Very specific, don't boil it, don't eat it raw, roast it. And then you eat it together. And any remains you sort of just burn up. There's to be nothing left behind. And you're to eat it in a particular way. You're to eat it to go, if you like. That is, you're to eat it, if you look there in uh, chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord tells the Israelites, 
sorry, back to verse 11. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girdled. What does that mean? Well, you're wearing a big sort of, you know, flowing cloaks as I guess they wore those days. You, you hook it up into your sort of undergarment so that you can sort of stride off. Right? You gird your loins so you can move. You do it with sandals on your feet, we're told there in that verse, and your staff in your hand. So you're standing there, loins girdled, sandals on, staff there, and you're eating. <laughs> Why? Well, finish the verse, verse 11. You're to eat it hurriedly. You're to eat this in a hurry because you're about to move. Now, what's the significance of what they're doing here? Have a look down in verse 12 of chapter 12. It's what the Lord says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Then he explains the significance of the blood. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood is a sign that they've been obedient to God, that they fear the Lord. They've heard what he said, they've listened to his instructions and they've been obedient to it. And you can see their faith demonstrated by the blood that's actually there on the doorframe. So the Lord knows those are his people, those who trust him, who are obedient to him and he passes over those households and spares them. Notice though also some instructions are given in this chapter, chapter 12, to those who aren't Israelites by birth. Have a look right at the end of chapter 12, a very interesting little section, chapter 12 verse 43 to 49. Let me read to you there these instructions. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he has been circumcised. Circumcision, of course, was the mark of the covenant that God had established with the Israelite people. All their males were to be circumcised. It was the the mark of this relationship that the people had with God. He points out then in verse 45, no bound or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. Down in verse 47, the whole congregation of Israel shall celebrate it. And then he has this interesting escape clause, if you like, in verse 48. If an alien who resides with you wants to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, all his males shall be circumcised. Then he may draw near to celebrate it. He shall be regarded as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. I think what you get here is a picture of grace. Here is a way for those who are not Jews by birth to escape this terrible Passover of the Lord by joining themselves to God's people. Imagine for a moment that you were an Egyptian at this time and you'd lived through these terrible nine plagues. You'd been there when all the water turned to blood. You'd had all those gnats all over your body. 
You'd had the, pl- the swarms of flies in your face and everywhere. You'd had the frogs. You'd had all your livestock die. Then you'd had that terrible three days of darkness. And then you hear off the Egyptian grapevine that that troublemaker Moses, he's gone back to Pharaoh and they've had that conversation and you've heard what Moses has said to Pharaoh, that the Lord has said he's going to pass through the land and every firstborn male will die, human and animal. And you're looking at your family and you're going, that's you. We already know from earlier in the story that some of Pharaoh's officials had come to fear the word of the Lord in the plague of hail and they'd started to listen to the Lord's warnings. I wonder if you'd been there, you might be starting to think, isn't there some way I can sort of swap sides at this point? And here it is, here's grace, here's your opportunity. You want to join with God's people? There's no special law for you. It's just the same as for the natives, the Israelites. Join in faith to the Lord. Seen in your obedience to this mark of the covenant, circumcision. Circumcise your males, celebrate the Passover and be saved on that day. And it's very interesting if you look there in chapter 12, when they all do actually come out and it's described there in verse 38... When the Israelites do come out of the land, verse 38, a mixed crowd also went up with them. That is, people who weren't Israelites. Seems to me, from reading the text there, that people did indeed make use of this opportunity of grace and they joined with the Israelites. And so, when the Israelites left to worship their God, you go too, because you've joined them. Their God is now your God. I think there's a picture of grace here even in the midst of this terrible judgement upon the nation of Egypt and the gods of Egypt. Well, there the instructions given. Then of course comes the actual Passover back there in chapter 12 verse 29 you can read it there at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians and there was a loud cry in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Not a house in the whole land without someone dead. What sort of response was there? to this terrifying display of God's power and judgement. Well, first of all, Pharaoh makes a response. You can read it there in verse 31 of that chapter. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you said. And you remember his earlier negotiation, leave your flocks behind. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone and bring a blessing on me too. I mean, it's a pretty astute move of Pharaoh to try to keep the, the flocks and the herds. After all, all the Egyptians' flocks and herds had died earlier in the plagues. So he said, yeah, you go, but keep them here. Now he's going, he's just desperate. Get out of this land. Take your flocks and herds on your way. 
What about the Egyptians? How do the rest of the Egyptians respond? Verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land for they said, we shall all be dead. You can almost imagine here the Egyptians of the surrounding households coming around where the Israelite households were, where the Israelites are all inside and they've been eating their Passover meal, standing there, and they're yelling at them, get out of here! Look what's happened to us! In their grief, in their anger, in their mourning, they're yelling at God, they're, get out of here, they're hastening their departure. In fact, the Israelites are so hurried at this point, look there in the verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Now, I really don't know anything much about baking bread. Um, I thought bread grew on trees at the back of the bakery. and they sort of just, but, but apparently, so I've discovered this week, um, you bake bread in an oven and to make it big and fluffy, like we like our bread so often, you have to put yeast in it. Now, the thing about yeast is you can't... You can't make bread with yeast in it in a hurry. As you knead the yeast through it, you have to leave it to rise. And it just takes time. It's no use saying, right, I've got ten minutes, I'll make a loaf of bread. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to let it rise. If you need to make it in a hurry, you leave the yeast out and bake it and what then is you get that flat bread, right? The one that doesn't rise. So what's happened here is the Israelites going, okay, the Lord's about to deliver us we're finally getting out of this place. We've eaten our Passover meal. Better make some provisions. Or let's, let's make a bit more bread. But the Egyptians have come round because all their firstborns have died. And they're saying, get out of here now! And so the, the Israelites have had to take their dough before they even had a chance to put the yeast in. They've packed it up, wrapped it up, and out they go in a hurry. Just as well the Lord told them to hold their staff in their hand and their sandals on their feet and the loins girdle. They had no idea how, how hurriedly it was going to be. And notice there what happens with respect to all the gold that they've asked for, gold and silver. The Israelites had done, verse 35, as Moses told them, they'd asked the Egyptians for jewellery of silver and gold and for clothing and the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked and so they plundered the Egyptians. I don't care what you ask for. Here it is. Get out of here. And so, the Lord takes them out. The result, really, there is in verse 37 and 38, which we've sort of looked at, and you can see the conclusion in verses 40 and 41. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt that was for the Lord, it says, a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by the Israelites throughout their generations. The Lord delivers his people as he's promised from the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, a strong hand, in large numbers. We read there's 600,000 men, let alone the rest of the uh, women and children, uh, with great riches in livestock and silver and gold and clothes and he delivers them out in great power. And you notice there, right there at verse 42, this was to be remembered. The Lord stayed up late, if you like, to deliver the Israelites. It happened at midnight 
And so for every year afterwards, the Israelites were to stay up late to remember it, to keep a vigil remembering what the Lord had done. And that brings us really to the point of reflection. How significant was this event? How significant was it? I want to suggest to you, and you might like to argue the case with me, you can do it over afternoon tea, I'd be happy to do that. I think this was the most significant event in the Old Testament. I know, big call, yes, David and Goliath, yes, I know. Um, Gideon and his fleece, yes, I know. Noah and the ark, come on, big deals. I think the most significant event in the Old Testament. Yeah, oh yeah. What about uh, creation, Rowan? (laughs) Okay, yes, very clever. Yes, you must be at university, you're so smart. Anyway, after creation, I would say, I think this is probably the most significant event in the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Well, because in the life of Israel, this was the event that defined them, really. This defined their identity. We're the people that the Lord chose and rescued from the land of Egypt. And you can see it in the way that this deliverance, this exodus was meant to live on in their consciousness. They were to remember it constantly, like, as I just pointed out, with the vigil, to remember every year. In fact, there are a whole raft of ways they were to remember it every year. Let me point out a few of them to you. Chapter 12, verse 2. They reset their calendars around this event. Chapter 12, verse 2. This month, says the Lord, shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That's how significant it was. Forget everything before, let's restart the calendar with this month. It's such a big deal. So forever afterwards, you're going to think about the year in terms of this deliverance. That's how you'll count your years. Uh, Interestingly, other people have tried to do that as well, with probably less success. The ancient Roman Empire dated their calendar from the founding of Rome. Uh, Napoleon tried to restart the French calendar based on some of his own exploits. Um, In a terribly negative example, Pol Pot in Cambodia declared year zero to do. But the difference is, see, with Pol Pot, he's had a revolution. That's defined the calendar. Here it's a rescue, see. It's it's an astoundingly gracious rescue that defines their calendar, that defines how they just think about the passage of time. And there were three different things that they were meant to do that would help them remember this deliverance. There's an annual Passover meal. You can read it there in chapter 12, verse 24 to 27. Right at the beginning, the Lord has set it up, say, you've got to remember this every year by celebrating this Passover meal. Do it the same way. Take a lamb, roast it, eat it, eat it in a particular way with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And there's a, there's a lovely moment in this little section here in verse 26. When you're celebrating this meal, the Lord says, and when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? Which I think is a terribly nice way to put it. Realistically, if you've got children or you've got young nieces and nephews, they all go, what are you doing, Dad? Why are you doing that? It's a very natural question for children to be asking. This is what you shall say. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. What's the point of the Passover meal? It's 
to help you remember that you were spared through sacrifice. Remember what we read before, in every Egyptian household, someone died. Actually, it's true that in every household, Egyptian and Israelite, someone died. But in the Israelite houses, it was the Passover lamb that died. Someone else died in place of the firstborn. We were spared. It's the Passover sacrifice when the Lord passed over our houses. So they're to remember that, that they were spared through sacrifice. The second way they're to remember it every year was through an annual festival of unleavened bread. You can remember that they had to leave in such a hurry that they had their unleavened dough still in their kneading bowls on their shoulders walking out of the land. What that meant was that for the next week or so as they're sort of journeying to Mount Sinai that's what they had to eat, unleavened bread. And you can read it there in chapter 12. They baked this unleavened bread. That was their supplies. And so what are they to do every year? For one week, the same week, they are to eat unleavened bread every year. Begins with the Passover, the day of the Passover meal, and for that next week you eat unleavened bread. You can see it there in chapter 12, 14 to 20, but also chapter 13, 3 to 10. If you turn to chapter 13, you can see there's the same child question. Verse 8 of chapter 13. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That is the point of the festival of unleavened bread, I take it, is that they were rescued with strength. They had to leave in such a hurry. The deliverance was so mighty, so strong was the Lord that they were driven out in great hurry. They couldn't even make suitable preparations. So strong was this deliverance. And so they're to eat unleavened bread every year for a week to remember just how hurriedly, how mighty was the Lord's deliverance. And the third way there to remember it was by a perpetual consecration of firstborns. It's also there in chapter 13. Let me read from verse 11. When the Lord has brought you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your ancestors and has given it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord's. That is, they're to be sacrificed to the Lord. But every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. And every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. And when in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. It's meant to remind them of the great sacrifice by which they were saved. And so this perpetual consecration of firstborns is their expression of sacrificial thanks to the Lord. So every single time that one of your livestock gave birth to their first male kid, Instead of keeping that valuable piece of livestock for yourself, you would sacrifice it to the Lord. Why? 
you are remembering with sacrificial thanks and acknowledgement that he rescued you and that your firstborns did not die. And if your donkey gives birth, the firstborn male, now donkeys, they're, they're pretty valuable. They're sort of like the Mack trucks of the ancient world. You know, it's your ute. Well, you don't want to sacrifice your ute. So, the Lord graciously says you can redeem your ute, your donkey, by sacrificing a sheep in its place. And the firstborn of your sons, obviously you're not going to sacrifice them because that's just paganism, right? That's awful to behold. So you must redeem that. But you will redeem it to remember the significance of what happened, of how the Lord delivered you. An expression of ongoing sacrificial thanks. So you see, with all of that built together, this deliverance of the Exodus was huge for the Israelites. It featured large in your self-understanding. It defined who they were. And if you were an Israelite, you would have been reminded of the significance of the Exodus every year. In the Passover, and then the week-long festival, any time, any of your livestock. and I mean, that could be a lot of animals if you had a big flock. Any time of your livestock or, your, or you had a, a firstborn son, it was all significant. It all reminded you of this great event. That's why I say I think it's the greatest event in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, that one year later, they celebrate it. Ten years later, wandering in the wilderness, still waiting to get into the promised land, they celebrate the Passover. Even a hundred years later, that's astounding, a hundred years later, while they're in the promised land, they're still celebrating the Passover. Five hundred years later, still celebrating it. A thousand years after these events, they were still celebrating the Passover. 1,400 years after these events, they're still remembering the deliverance of the Exodus through the Passover, through the Festival of Unleavened. How do I know that? Because it's actually recorded in the Christian Bible, people celebrating the Passover that, that time later. In fact, you can see one. There was this guy, he's celebrating the, the Passover with some of his mates. There were 12 mates. And they're celebrating it in an upper room. And it's recorded for you in Mark 14. But something very weird happened that time. So why don't you turn to Mark 14 with me. We'll finish off just by thinking about the significance of what we've learnt about in the Exodus and see the way that it gets transformed. 1,400 odd years later, here's Jesus of Nazareth sitting in an upper room with 12 of his mates celebrating the Passover. Pick it up in chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, verse 12. And with all the background that we've now covered, as you read this, probably there's going to be things that resonate with you a bit more clearly now. And you go, oh, right, I, I know what that's talking about. Verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Now, we know all about that now. Yep, we know it's a week-long festival and the Passover happens on the first day. Okay, we're, we're, we're in the zone now. We understand this. Jesus' disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he gives them some instructions. Jump down to verse 22. That night, while they're eating the Passover meal, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. 
Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and all of them drank from it and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now that's a bit weird. What's Jesus doing? At the Passover meal, which was the key body? Which was the key body? It's the Passover lamb, isn't it? That's the body that's broken. That's the, that's the blood that's shed. And he's there, breaks a loaf of bread and said, this is my body. He passed around, this is my blood of the covenant that's poured out for many. I think what he's saying here, wait, I think what he's saying here is that this is a new Passover. No longer is there a Passover lamb. Now there's Jesus. And you might say, okay, is that a bit of a stretch? Well, let me just show you some of the other things around this that actually, I think, build together this picture that that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Flick forward to chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel where Jesus is about to die. Now, you remember back in the Exodus, before the death of the firstborn, what was the ninth plague? Darkness, right? Darkness, then death. What happens when Jesus of Nazareth is about to die? Chapter 15, verse 33. Jesus already there on the cross. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Three hours of darkness. What was it in the Exodus? Three days of darkness. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's some confusion about what he's saying. Jump down to verse 37. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his laugh. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. Darkness followed by death of the firstborn. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood poured out for many. Remember what Jesus said back in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When do you ever pay a ransom? Well, that culture, the most common time you ever pay a ransom is you buying somebody out of slavery. You ransom them from slavery. Jesus comes and says, I'm the ransom to buy people out of slavery. Who's he buying out of slavery? What sort of deliverance from slavery is being affected here in Jesus? Well, it, it's God's righteous judgment against sin and death. He's rescuing people from slavery to sin. Now, slavery to sin is a much more deeply destructive and pervasive slavery than the slavery that was going on in Egypt. It's a slavery that refuses to acknowledge God. A slavery that refuses to humble ourselves before God. Interesting, if you go back to the, what's happening in Exodus, who are the slaves? You look at it and go, well, it's got to be the Israelites, right? They're the slaves. Actually, no. I mean, yes, but no. Pharaoh's actually a slave. He's a slave to sin. 
He's a slave to rebellion against God. And in fact, when you look at the Israelites, yes, they come out of that physical slavery, but if you look at the history of the Israelites, they get into the Promised Land and they're continually going back against God. In a way, the Israelites too are slaves to sin in their history. And we look around us and the truth is that the Christian scriptures tell us anyone outside of Christ is a slave to sin. And that's the slavery that Jesus came to redeem us from. We needed a deliverance that would rescue us from that slavery, that recalcitrant disobedience, rejection, rebellion against God. We needed a deliverance that would soften our hearts towards God, that we might love him and fear him and joyfully obey him. We needed a Passover sacrifice, someone who would bear the guilt and the penalty instead of us, of our sin. And Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood poured out for many. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's glorious and it's awesome to contemplate and humbling to comprehend that, that Jesus died to save you. He's your Passover lamb. Interestingly, the Jews celebrated the Passover for thousands of years, still do today. Here we have a new Passover, a greater Passover. Do we remember it? You bet we do. We don't have time to follow it up, but yes, Jesus even gives it with a new commemoration. It's called the Lord's Supper. That's why Christians don't celebrate the Passover. We now celebrate the Lord's Supper where we remember the the bread for his body and the drink for his blood. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death this new Passover sacrifice until he comes again. It's a new Passover with a new commemoration and a much greater salvation. Let me just finish in the last two minutes by thinking with you about what the picture is in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. If you want to just turn up there, let me just read you a few verses and we'll finish with this. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. It's part of a, a bigger vision from chapter 4 through to chapter 7 that the Lord Jesus gives John the Apostle. And notice what's said there in chapter 7 of Revelation verse 9. John says, After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cry out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. A bit down, further down in verse 13 there's a question, who are these who are robed in white? And the answer comes in verse 14. Those robed in white are those who have come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it's picture language just saying, Around this throne in heaven there is this international, multicultural, uncountable group of people who are all praising God and the Lamb and they're wearing white robes. How did they get white robes? Well, it's because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
All their sins have been washed away through the blood of this slain lamb. And now they stand there singing in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb. Why do I point that out to you? Well, we started with that uh, topic today, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. You see, in the Bible it's not the cry of an avenger who wants revenge on somebody. In the Bible, it's the proclamation of the merciful and kind God who says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So I've sent my only son that his blood might be shed so that your sins can be forgiven. It's a proclamation of God's mercy and grace. And when you realise that, you want to join yourself together with God's people and say, Yes, I'll have my robes washed white, thank you very much, in the blood of the Lamb. You want to join yourself to the people of God, not by the mark of circumcision, but by the new mark of faith, of trust, of obedience to this God. Back in the Exodus, how did people respond? They bowed down and worshipped. In the new creation, with this new Passover Lamb, a greater salvation, how do people respond? They sing in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Are you going to be there, friends? Are you going to be there on that day? I hope so. Who are you going to take with you? Who are you going to take with you? Let me lead in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your wonderful works of salvation worked throughout history. We thank you for the Exodus, the way you saved your covenant people with mighty acts of deliverance and with great grace to those who fear you. And we thank you for sending your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to destroy sin and death for us so that we might be forgiven so that we might be yours for all eternity, so that we might live to praise your name. We pray that you would write these things deep into our hearts and minds, that above all else in this life, we might live for you and bring glory to Jesus, because you alone are worthy. Amen.